Yes, Father, this morning, we give you all the glory, God. We declare that you are the great and the mighty God, the one who is worthy to be praised, the one who existed before there was anything, and who lives now and forevermore. We declare, Jesus, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that at your name every knee will bow, both on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. We praise you, God, our wonderful King, our beautiful Savior, the one who has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and rescued us and brought us into the kingdom of His Son the one who has adopted us and welcomed us into the family of light, invited us to that most intimate place where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sits in intimate communion you've brought us in, God. And you've welcomed us to spend an eternity with you. This morning, our God, we just lift up our hearts and we worship you. We say that you are the great God the wonderful Savior, and we love you, we love you, we love you, God. In your wonderful name, we pray together this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Shirley and the team, for our time of worship. Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's exciting for me to be back with you and the eight and send service. It's exciting for me to be preaching again, to be honest. I've been on like a two-month hiatus where I've had a chance to rest and recuperate and do all the other things that have been uh, not getting the attention they deserved. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we are working our way through Matthew's Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through to 7. We've called it a new way to live as Jesus begins to teach his disciples about what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And you've just entered with us into the, the beginning of the third part of our, of our series. Uh, we got to Matthew chapter 7 this week. And so over the last two weeks, if you've been with us, we've been, Jesus has been speaking a little bit about money and possessions and the tension that exists between greed on the one hand and worry on the other. Greed of wanting too much and worry about not having enough and talking about that middle road of walking the road of trust and contentment with God down the middle. And this week, as, he, as we move into chapter 7, Jesus kind of swings away from this idea of money and possessions, and he begins to talk about what it looks like to have relationships with one another in the kingdom of God. And so this morning, we're going to teach on perhaps some of Jesus' most well-known words outside the church. If I, I actually, I try to see if this list existed, um, but I couldn't find anything on Google, but a list of Jesus' most famous sayings that are known by not yet Christians. Right? I think if we had to look for a list like that, I think well, the passage we're going to look at this morning would be in the top ten of that list. Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged. Remember that phrase? You heard that phrase before? Right? These are, I think, some of Jesus' most famous words. Our, our world loves these words because they fit so nicely into our culture of easy offense and personal standards of loyalty. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, this, is may, this may be a slightly out there reference for the 8 o'clock service, but I back you guys. Anyone remember the rapper Tupac? Right? Uh, this is a little out there. I never listened to him, right? But he was quite a revolutionary. He was quite outspoken. 
he wrote a song in 1996 that said, Only God can judge me. Uh, he was not, he's not alone in that sentiment. So maybe, maybe you know Chris Brown. He's another contemporary musician. Also a little bit of a violent guy. Has some uh, unfortunate anger issues. He also wrote a song called Don't Judge Me just six years ago. Right? But maybe, maybe like me, you remember uh, a number of conversations that I've had through school, through varsities, even with friends that I speak to at the moment, particularly with non-Christian friends, where the, where the phrase, don't judge me, kind of gets bandied about quite easily in conversation. They're just about to tell you something that's you know, a little bit outside your frame of reference, and it just gets preferenced by, okay, don't judge me, but, and then I'm going to tell you this little thing. See, unfortunately, unfortunately for us as Christians, we tend to we tend to get this reputation of being holier than thou, of kind of standing up on a pedestal and, and looking down at the rest of the world. Right? And, and too many times, the church has earned the title of hypocrites, which is a really sad and terrible thing, and especially when it's proved true. And for those of you who've been following the Me Too campaign, you'll know just how, how deeply that accusation can run. And those, I think that's a little bit of the context that Jesus' words land in for us today. Right? But what are, what are we to make of the statement that Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged? What kind of judgment is Jesus talking about? Is it possible for us as the church to, to put off this label of hypocrites that the world has placed on us? How does this idea of not judging fit into other parts of Scripture where we see judgment happening and perhaps even being commended or affirmed? How does that all work? So we're going to look a little bit at that this morning. We're going to start with that last question. I'm going to start by just placing the idea of judgment in a slightly broader biblical context. And then we're going to unpack a little bit of what Jesus says right here in Matthew chapter 7. All right, so let's do that together. Start in Matthew chapter 7 with the word judge that we have there. Just let's make sure we know what we're talking about. This comes from the Greek word krino, which means to separate or to distinguish. Right? To judge. It comes from a, to make a choice or a decision, by, to make a judgment, to reach a verdict about something. That's the idea that's being conveyed there. Thea, who's one of the Greek scholars, he comments that the proper meaning of krino is to pick out or to choose by separating. And it typically refers to making a determination of right or wrong, innocence or guilt, and can often be applied and particularly applied in a legal context. Right, that's the word that we find here in Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge, lest you be judged. It's the normal word that we would use for critical evaluation that informs the decision that we make. Right, that, that's the word that Jesus is using here. So it's important to know he's not speaking about a condemnation toward eternal judgment in this context. That's not what he's speaking about here. He's talking about this word that describes the way in which we live in our daily lives. So let's, let's have a look at four other examples in Scripture where we see this idea of judgment and judging others kind of uh, get worked through, and then we'll land back here in Matthew 7. And the first place to, we want to go is to James chapter 4 in verses 11 and 12, because this seems to reaffirm a little bit of the idea that we've got here in Matthew 7. And James writes to the church and he says, Don't speak evil against one another, brothers or sisters. Right? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law, and he judges the law. But if you're judging the law, then you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver, and there's only one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? 
Right, so, so this, seems, this seems right out, out the bat to, to reaffirm what Jesus is saying about not judging, not judging others, right? And, and this lands in a context in James chapter 4. It's, a, it's amongst a list of instructions and exhortations to the church about Christian living. But what you see here is the word judge in this context is actually written to convey the idea of condemnation. It's a judgment towards the, the eternal destiny of someone. And I don't want to get into the, like, the deep Greek because no one really is going to pay attention as we do that. But you can go and have a look and we can talk about it afterwards if you want. But the, the connotation that's attached to the word krino here is that it's the judgment that moves towards a, a condemnation. Right? It's the judgment that is, that is God's providence and God's providence alone. To know the ultimate fate of a person, of, of their state before God. That's what James is cautioning the church against. He's saying, don't presume to know where someone else is going. Don't look at their behavior and say, you know, if you're acting like that, you must be outside the faith and you will ultimately find yourself in hell. That's his concern here. He's saying, allow God to take that judgment. Don't speak evil against your brother by assuming to know that which you don't. That's the principle that he's establishing here in James chapter 4. Let's jump to 1 Corinthians 5, because we don't have time to do a deep exegesis on all of these texts. Otherwise, we're not going to get to Matthew 7. All right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Right? This is Paul, right? And he's writing here to the church in the context of deep sexual immorality that's happening in the church. Some people are doing some pretty deplorable things in the Corinthian church. And he's calling the church not to associate with Christians who engage in blatant, unrepentant sin. That's when he begins to list a collection of different sins. You can have a look at it in the few verses before um, where he begins to list the things that people are engaged in. Say, if they're going to do these things, you need to not do that. And so when he, when he speaks about judgment in this context, what he's doing is he's talking about your ability as a Christian to recognize sinful behavior and to respond appropriately to it. That's what he's saying. You need to be able to critically evaluate what's happening amongst your brothers and sisters in the church so that you can see where someone is walking in sin or not. You need to be able to do that. And it's not your job to do that to those outside the church. We're not called to be the morality police to the world. But we're called to help one another within the church. There needs to be an ability that we have to recognize and distinguish righteousness from sinfulness. That's a decision we have to make. It's a judgment that we have to make. We have to know what is righteous and good and what is not good. And then we need to avoid that which is sinful, do that which is righteous, and, and help our brothers and sisters within the church not to continue living in a way that is sinful. We'll explore that a little bit more as we go. I'm going to jump to John chapter 7 where Jesus is speaking, right? And, and he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's, uh, he's gone through to the festival of booths. It's one of the annual festivals that they would have in the Jewish calendar. He's gone through to Jerusalem, and unfortunately for Jesus, or perhaps fortunately, he encountered someone along the way who needed to be healed, but it was the Sabbath, and, you know, Jesus in his um, typical fashion didn't really, wasn't really concerned about healing someone on the Sabbath or not, and so he heals this person, and the Pharisees get into a real tiz, and a, like they get real frustrated with him. And so they come before him, and they say, how can you do this? How can you heal someone on the Sabbath? How can you work on the Sabbath? That's blasphemy. It's a terrible thing. You're a terrible person. Right? That's the context in which it lands. And so Jesus is rebuking these Pharisees, and he says to them, you need to stop judging by mere appearances. 
but instead you need to judge correctly. And here, when he's speaking about judging, he's talking about the ability to interpret moral rightness and wrongness. It's the ability to, to analyze a situation and understand that which is righteous and that which is sinful. They're, they're telling him what he's doing is sinful. He's saying, no, you need to look deeper. What you've done is you've seen just the surface. You've seen just that what's on top, and you've made a judgment about what you think you know, but actually you haven't judged correctly. And the call to you is to judge righteously to judge correctly, to, to understand how the Father would see this situation, to know what's really going on, and then to form a righteous judgment. That's the call that we see here in John chapter 7. Right? And then I want to go to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And the interesting thing is the word judge doesn't appear in this passage, but I think the principle is really there. And Paul is writing to the Galatian church. He's just about to finish uh, his, his letter, he's just finished speaking about walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. And he says this, he says, Brothers and sisters, if there is another believer who is overcome by sin, then you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. But you need to be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Right? He doesn't say judge here. But, but how, how are we going to be able to do this if we can't make a judgment about what they're doing? How are we going to be able to help our brother or our sister who's overcome by sin if we can't, A, recognize what they're doing is sinful and that it needs to change? Jesus' command to not judge in Matthew would, would make this impossible if that's what he was saying. Right? So that he, must be, he must be saying something else. And so we're going, to, we're going to jump into Matthew in a moment. Before we do that, notice a couple of things. We're going to come back to these. But notice how Paul instructs people to go about doing this. He says it's, it's not about being proud or arrogant in the way in which you do it. It's about being gentle and humble. It's, there's a concern for others. And we're going to see as we look at Jesus' words how that begins to come out. All right. So that's, that's a brief, brief overview of a broader biblical context um, and New Testament idea of judging and judging others. Let's jump back into Matthew chapter 7. Let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So Jesus gives this rule. He says, Don't judge or you will be judged. And then, and then he immediately qualifies it. Right? He uses this little word for, and, and it's, it's to help us to understand why he's saying this thing. This instruction that he's giving his disciples is not something that's out of the blue. It's not just coming out of left field. Right? But there's something about the kingdom of God. There's something away about the way in which the kingdom operates that he wants his disciples to understand. Right? And so he, be, so he begins to explain it. And he says, guys, here's the thing. This is the thing that I want you to know. You, you see, you're, you're going around... And you're carrying this judgmental attitude. And it's already a part of how you're living. But, but I need to let you know that if you continue to live like this, it's not going to work out very well for you in the end. Right? The, the, the thing is, you, the way in which you're judging others right now, the way in which you're living, that's how my Father is going to judge you. And the standard that you're setting for others in the moment, my Father is going to hold you to that same standard. And, and my concern for you is this that you might find his application of that standard a little less generous than your own. Jesus says, I'm, I'm telling you guys this because you're my disciples. 
You're, you're my brothers in the Lord. You're those that I'm going to entrust the faith to when I go. And I, and I need you to know this I, because I care about you. And I want you to know what the Father is, is like. I want you to know, friends, that one day there is going to be a reckoning. There is going to be a reckoning. One day there's going to be a time when you're going to come before my Father and He's going to call you to stand before His throne and answer His questions. I'm sure you remember how that went for Job. Right? They certainly would have, as Jewish men in the first century. It didn't go very well. If you haven't read the book of Job, Job's attempt to question God and to answer his questions left him somewhat speechless. And Jesus sits there with his disciples and he says, guys, when you come before the Father, he sees everything. He sees everything, every word that you've uttered in secret, Jesus says, will be spoken from the rooftops. He sees everything. Are you so sure that you can pass even your own standard? Are you so sure you can pass your own standard? And Jesus is warning his disciples because he cares for them. And because we need to hear that same warning today for us. We need to recognize that Jesus was speaking to his disciples about this. The probability is we need to hear it as well. I can say that for myself. I won't presume to say it over you, but, but I, I, I'd recommend if you really had to look in, you'd probably need to hear this as well. How often, how often do we form snap judgments in our mind about someone, prejudging them before we really know them? I know, I know I've done this often. I remember going to a bachelor's once, and at the bachelor's, for those of you who, who have been to bachelor's, as I'm sure m most of you have, right, you, you go there and, and you, you're a part of a group of friends that knows your friend from a particular context. But there are also other groups, there are family members, there are maybe other groups of friends of that friend that you haven't met before and you all kind of get together and do whatever you're going to do together. And I remember going to a friend's bachelor's and there was a guy there that I'd never seen before and I remember he had perfectly gelled hair and it was beautifully styled and he has these amazingly oakly shades on and he, he just looked really sharp, you know? And I, immediately in my mind, I just thought to myself, you know what, this guy is definitely too cool for me. We're, we're not, we don't walk in the same social circles, you know? I, we're not really going to have much of a conversation over the course of that day. And, uh, and God really showed me as we, as we spent time, oh, you know, God has a sense of humor, as I'm sure many of you know. And uh, so we, we went to a restaurant at one point to the bachelors to sit down, and who sits opposite me but this guy that I th feel like I can't speak to. And as we begin to chat, I begin to realize, you know, he's actually, he's just a man. And he's just like me. He had actually been through a terrible hurt in his past, and there were wounds that he was carrying. And we, were talk we got to talking about such deep stuff. And the, and the hurt that the church had, had caused him and the battles that he was going with. And, and then afterwards, we went to pray for our mate as a, as a group. Of, and he was blown away by the love that was shown to our friend by the group of guys that loved him and loved the Lord. And, and God so broke my perception of who he was. And yet I'd formed that snap judgment in my mind. Last night, Glenda and I were trying to go to sleep. And uh, our neighbors, bless their heart, were having a great time. <laughs> And man, it was so hard not to judge them in my spirits. It was so frustrating. And we, we have people that have lovely motorbikes in our neighborhood, and they love to show them off to the rest of their neighbors at 12 o'clock in the night, 2 o'clock in the morning. It's amazing. Sometimes it's really hard not to make judgments on the surface. How often do we, do we properly interrogate 
the things that we read, the things that we hear, the things that we choose to say, or even the things that we choose to believe. Versus how often do we make snap judgments? How often do we judge from appearances rather than making what Jesus says righteous judgments? And it's a warning for us to consider, but, but Jesus carries on. He says, you know what? If you ignore this warning, you ignore it at your peril. And so he goes on and he says this in verse 3. He says to his disciples, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Right? This, is, this is like a slamming indictment on his own disciples. Right? These aren't the evil Pharisees. He, I mean, he gets to rebuking the Pharisees later. Right? But these are his disciples. These are the guys close to him. And, and he, he makes a statement, and it's loaded with intentional hyperbole. Right? And the, the word log, the word log here is the Greek word dokon. It actually refers to a plank or a beam that's typically used to make a roofing truss. Right? If any of you have ever built a home or been a part of, like roofing trusses are very large pieces of timber. We're talking four or five meters long. Right? It's, it's t- intentionally ridiculous. Right? It's, it's incredulous, and Jesus has done this for a reason. Um, before we explore the reason, uh, there are three things that we almost need to see before we realize why Jesus has used this hyperbole. The first, the first thing is, I want us to notice is this. Jesus says, why do you look? Right? It's, already, it's something that they are already doing. This is not a fanciful kind of potential sin that they need to be careful not to fall into at some point. This is something that they are already doing. Why are you already doing this? The verb here is very active. Why do you make a practice of looking for other people's sin? If they're doing it, we we probably need to recognize we're probably doing it a little bit as well. The second thing I want us to just see in this before we we move on to the reason, right, is that this isn't something that's done with neutral motives. It's not like, you know, I'm casually going around and I just happen to observe the sin in all my brothers and sisters around me. Yeah. It's talking about to look. Notice the difference here between to look and to notice. Right? We look for the speck that's in our brother's eye, but we don't notice the log that's in our own. The, the verbs are different, and they're intentionally different. Right? Because the, the idea here of looking at the speck carries this idea of, of criticism, of, of a critical spirit. You know, when you, you know when you listen to someone with skepticism? Have you ever done that? you ever gone to a conference or a talk? Maybe you're doing it to me right now. Right? And you're not sure that you can trust me, and so you're a little bit skeptical, and you're waiting for me to say something that you disagree with. You ever done that? Right? Jesus is saying, this is what you're doing to your brothers and sisters. You're, you're looking at them, and you're searching for the thing that you disagree with. You're searching for the sin that you can point out. It's a nuance. The word carries it. And that's a heart problem. That's a problem in the heart of his disciples. And then, then there's the reality behind the hyperbole. And we just need to catch this as well before we recognize why Jesus has used this, this incredible hyperbole, right? We, we, we need to not miss this. Just because Jesus is exaggerating the, the reality of the beam or the plank, but he's using, he's using this language for an effect, but he's also doing it because the fault that the disciples are carrying is much bigger than the fault that they're looking for in someone else. Right? So we, we just need to recognize that the, the metaphorical log that's in their eye is their own issue, their own sin problem. And Jesus says, you know what? That's actually much bigger. The thing that you're carrying is much bigger than what you're looking for in your brother or sister. So you need to be careful. All right. Okay, we have verse 4 there. 
He then carries on, and he draws us to, to what's really quite an inevitable um, conclusion to his previous statements. Uh, but he says this, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and, but behold, there's still a log in your own eye. Right? This, this begins to highlight the incredulity of honestly trying to do that. I mean, some of you might know Kendrew, Kendrew Suttle. He's an ophthalmologist. He does serious work with, with eyes. Right, and operations and like re- very delicate stuff. I really wouldn't want Kendrew trying to operate on my pupil with a big plank coming over his face. Uh, it's not going to work very well. It's going to inhibit his ability to do his job. Right? Jesus is saying there's a plank that's covering your eyes. You, you are totally unable to see the detail in someone else's situation. You can't see it at best. The best you can do is you can see on the surface. You can kind of glance the person as you like peer around the plank. That's the, that's the picture he's trying to create. Right? But as we remember earlier, that's if you can only see on the surface, you don't have the ability to make a correct and a righteous judgment. So Jesus continues the story in verse 5, and he draws it to the very obvious and the very logical conclusion. Right? He says, you hypocrites... First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This this is the very obvious solution. Jesus is right. Remove plank from face, see clearly, then help others. It's not hard. It's not genius level stuff. It's, it's It's really simple. The trick is, here's the challenge. You need to be able to recognize that there's a plank in your own eye. That's the thing. That's the part we've got, to, we've got to recognize. And that's why I want to, want to look at Galatians 6, 1 again. It's why we looked at it a bit earlier. And I want, Craig, will you just put that up so we can have a look at them side by side in this space? All right. I want you to notice how these two things are similar. Paul's first condition, Galatians 6, 1, it, says it starts with the other person. If another believer is overcome by sin. In other words, that. They, they, are, they are the ones who are overcome by sin. You don't go out hunting it out in them. Right? Some of you will know John Calvin was one of the reformers in the 16th century, did a lot of good things for the church. Right? He, he was quite a zealous guy. And so they would make these Christian communities that they lived in. And Calvin had a holiness police. And the holiness police would walk around from house to house and try and make sure that you were living as righteous a life as God required of you. And if you weren't, they would enforce that righteousness on you. That may not have been one of Calvin's better inventions, along with some of his theology, but we won't go there now. Right? It's not about looking for the sin in someone else. It's not about hunting it out. Right? You've got to recognize that they they get overcome first. Secondly, what I want us to notice, what Paul says here, it's addressed to those who are godly. He says, those of you who are godly, not those of you who are battling with deep temptation yourself. Those of you who are godly, ch- check your own character first before you look to help someone else. This is part of normal first aid, right? If any of you have done a first aid course, you'll remember the three H's of first aid, hazards, hello, and help, right? The first thing you do before you try and help anyone is make sure that as you walk into the puddle that they've been electrocuted in, that the live wire is no longer in the puddle. Otherwise, it's not going to go well for you. Let's check our own character first. This is, we, need to, we need to come before God. We need to be able to say, Lord, to the best of my knowledge, 
I'm living in this area in as much righteousness as, as you've enabled me at this point. Right. Have, you, have you allowed God to hold you to the standard that you want, you want to help your brother or sister to live up to? Have you, have you invited God to do that? Have you invited Him to examine your own heart and to point out any sin that you might be carrying? But David writes, search me and know me, God. Point out any unrighteous way within me. Have you prayerfully processed that, whatever God might show you before God in repentance? Have you turned away from it? Have you turned to follow God? Because if you haven't done that yet, I want to suggest you're not ready to help a brother or sister in their sin issue. Thirdly, Paul writes, it's about being gentle and it's about being humble. Right? This is about our motives. It's, it's about the, the deep concern that we have for our brother or sister. It's not about pride or arrogance. It's not about being right. It's not about being right. But it's about your love for the other person so moving you and so moving your heart that when you see them in the bondage of sin that it breaks your heart to know that there is a freedom that Jesus is offering them and you just so desire for them to walk into that freedom. It's about recognizing that it's only by God's grace and the move of His Spirit in your own life that you're not where they are at the moment. It's not because you're better or tried harder, but it's because God has been gracious to you and has been at work in you. Finally, it's about doing it carefully. Paul says, be careful that you don't fall into the same temptation because just because God has given you victory in the space in your own life, that doesn't make you immune to temptation it doesn't make you immune to the schemes of the evil one. It doesn't even make you immune to your own sinful nature. Paul says, when you go to help a brother or sister who's overcome by sin, you need to be careful. You need, you need to have a deep and profound reliance and dependence on God and an awareness of your own sinful desires, awareness of your own areas of weakness, so that you go in there and you're careful. You know that saying, and an unguarded strength is your greatest weakness. We need to remember that it's only by God's grace that we're able to overcome. So that's the call. That's the call from Jesus to us. It's a, it's a warning against hypocrisy. It's a call to critical self-evaluation, to look at yourself. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, before you take communion, first examine yourself and know what's going on within you. It's a call to genuine humility. To not be trying to fix others because you can't deal with yourself, but to be loving one another. Right? The selfless love, that it's about giving of yourself for someone else, not because of what you want, but because of how you love them. And it's about a deep, deep reliance on God and on the Spirit that He's given us. That's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 7, about not judging others lest we also be judged. Before I close, I want, to, I want to briefly examine verse 6 because it's here and we need to just have a look at it. But verse 6 is one of those interesting verses in Scripture that is not conceptually difficult to understand, but exactly what it means in practice and how it fits specifically into the context of verses 1 to 5 is a little bit interesting. And um, scholars are, are not entirely convinced of, of exactly uh, how it links into this part of Jesus' sermon. But let's read it together, and let's just say a couple of things. Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pills before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. Right. Say a couple of things about this just quickly. 
Uh, this is one of those, it seems to be a wisdom saying that it's like a little proverb that Jesus is dropping in in the middle of, of this teaching that he's giving, right? And, uh, and it's to convey the idea of not making inappropriate judgments. That's, that's the heart of what he's saying. Dogs were unclean in Jewish culture. I'm sorry for those of you like my wife who, who deeply love dogs, right? Jesus doesn't hate dogs, but they were unclean in a Jewish culture. And, and people would often throw uh, offerings from the altar to the dogs, and that was considered an unholy practice. But what Jesus is saying is it's totally inappropriate. It's even sinful to give that which is holy to that which is unclean. Right? That's not something that we should be doing. And it's impossible for us to know exactly what that holy thing is. Right? There are a number of possibilities. Uh, I don't want to get us lost in that today. But just as it would be inappropriate for us to give pearls to a pig, anyone ever done that? It's a bit of a weird thing to do. Right? Pigs don't appreciate the value of pearls. They don't really want to wear a pretty necklace. I know, again, those of you who love animals and pigs would love to dress your animals up, but probably not on your finest pearls, right? If Jolene was here, she would agree. Right. So it's about not making inappropriate judgments. And perhaps its placement here, this is the second thing, after verses 1 to 5, reinforces this idea of judging righteously or judging rightly as opposed to not judging at all. Because in order to live out what Jesus says in verse 6, you would, have to, you would have to determine that which is holy, and unfortunately you'd have to determine those who are pigs. And you wouldn't say that to their face because that would be an awful thing to do. But there's a judgment that you're called to make between what is righteous and holy and who are the people that you're not to give it to. Finally, it also appears to, to demonstrate that in order to, if you fail to make this right judgment, there are negative consequences and repercussions for the disciple that, that fails to do that. Right? To not be discerning, as verse 6 indicates, invites the pigs to turn around and to attack you. So there seems to be a reinforcement of this idea to judge rightly and correctly. All right, that's, that's what Jesus has to say about judging others. I don't want to draw that out any longer. What I want for us to do is to ask God to help us to live this out. That's what, isn't it wonderful to be a part of a community that loves one another, that selflessly gives to one another, that, that where, where someone is caught in a sin, where someone comes alongside, humbly, gently, and gently encourages and calls you into the righteousness that God has for us. Isn't that the kind of community you want to be a part of? Rather than those who stand on a pedestal and point out your faults. Let's, let's pray together. Let's ask God to help us with that. And then we're going we're gonna to have some tea and coffee. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you never left us as orphans. But that when you went, you said, it's better that I go. Because the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he is going to, he's going to take the heart of stone that's in you. He's going to make it into a heart of flesh. He's going to, he's going to take the, the law of God and the, and the description of the character of God. And he's going to take that from being something on a tablet. And he's going to write it onto that new heart that he's given us. Thank you, Lord, that you are in us. That you speak to us. That you lead us. Thank you, God, that you, that you call us to help one another, to love one another, to live righteously together. And God, we pray for the grace. We pray for the grace of, of conviction. 
we know that it's the kindness of God that moves us toward repentance. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, before we even want to help others, we pray you would help us to see our own sins, our own flaws, our own failings. And you would help us, God, to to be constantly in a process of allowing you to change us from the inside out and moving us into righteousness. We pray, God, we pray that if there is any critical spirit within us, God, we want to repent of that now. And you're welcome just to join me in that. If you recognize this in yourself at all, just say, God, I repent of being critical in my spirit towards others. And I ask your forgiveness, God. Help me, God, to act and to think with love and grace towards my brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, pour into us by your Spirit a growth of genuine love for one another, a deep, selfless love that pours itself out for those around us. Now come and be at work in us, God. May we be the kind of people that love one another. Won't you break the hypocrisy that sometimes exists amongst us, God, where we judge others but we fail to judge ourselves. Help us, God, to together strive towards righteousness with grace and humility. And some of us, there might be some of us, and and I just want to, I want to say this. I feel God led me to say this. There might be some of us who, who need to take some action. You might need to go and find someone that you've prejudged. You might even need to bring someone before, you, before, yeah, before the Lord in your heart and just ask God for forgiveness for making a snap judgment. Judging from appearances rather than judging righteously and correctly. And if God so directs you, then maybe there, there's an opportunity to re-explore a relationship that's been closed off before. Oh, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to, to speak into our hearts that there's something that we need to hear from you this morning. Why don't you speak it, God, so that we might follow you for your kingdom's sake and for your glory. We ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, thank you for being with us this morning. There is tea and coffee in the Connect Cafe outside. If you want a running shirt, there is a sign-up sheet in the Connect Cafe. And uh, there are books on sale for Aki and the devotionals as well.